To be. Or not to be. That, that is, is the question. question. About a decade ago, psychoanalyst Dr. Jameson Webster and philosopher Professor Simon Critchley set about writing a book together. They would use philosophy and psychoanalysis as tools to try to unravel the mystery of Hamlet. It took them on a psychological trail, which was to lead them away from Hamlet to the tragic figure of Ophelia. We must be patient, but I cannot choose but weep to think they should lay him in the cold ground. And her own version of the to-be-or-not-to-be speech. Lord, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. As a married couple, they also had a personal reason to collaborate on the book. I think it was to somehow deal with our marital problems. <laughs> Simon and I. Me and Jameson, we were in our way trying to work out a relationship, a marriage uh, around this, this two-headed monstrosity that is Hamlet and Ophelia. I think we didn't even understand what we were engaging in at the time that we were writing it. So in this episode, the authors discuss what they found out about Hamlet and Ophelia, how the play works on us, and the effect which writing the book had on their relationship. I think you have to be very careful. I think you have to be very, very careful. I think there's something very powerful there. Jameson and Simon's book is called The Hamlet Doctrine. It draws its name from something Friedrich Nietzsche said. Nietzsche was thinking about the to-be-or-not-to-be speech and what Hamlet says about thought and action. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. The Hamlet Doctrine is a phrase that Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, uses in the, um, the birth of tragedy. Knowledge kills action. Action requires the veils of illusion. That is the Hamlet doctrine. <laughs> Knowledge kills action. Action requires the veils of illusion. The minute that we read that, we were that's the title. It's the Hamlet doctrine. Hamlet knows too much. Conscience annuls, makes more difficult the question of action. And Hamlet doesn't act. And that's the kind of the puzzle of the, the play in many ways, turns around that. Psychoanalytically speaking, why is he divided against his own desire? Why is he divided against his desire to seek justice or tell people the truth of what he's learned? Why is he divided against his own love for Ophelia? Why is Hamlet always divided against himself? For me, it's a fundamentally psychoanalytic question. I mean, it's the thing that I do every day with patients is speak to people about this. Nietzsche thought Hamlet's mental anguish gave him profound insights into the reality of existence. You know, he's a melancholic, looking into the heart, into the, into the abyss, the core of all things. The extraordinary thing about melancholics is that they often have extraordinary self-insight. They can they understand them, themselves in their, in their melancholia. At the heart of this is a bleak and potentially terrifying idea. If we could truly see into the fundamental nature of existence, it would be a devastating, paralysing experience. To do anything in the world, we have to hide from ourselves the truth of our own predicament. 
we need what Nietzsche calls the veils of illusion. This is the idea is that reality is something that from the very beginning we, we instinctively turn away from. Whether it's mortality, whether it's the reality of sexuality, whether it's the limits to enjoyment, but none of this do we want to see. We want to see something else. And so when we do see it, we're either horrified or we're disgusted or some combination of both. And the question becomes, well, what am I even supposed to do? What is any of this for? Why bother? I mean, you have to remember that Nietzsche went mad, that he had his own relationship to peering into the truth, the kind of turning towards himself, a kind of almost megalomanic melancholia, and then a collapse, a complete and total collapse. So, I mean, Nietzsche must have known that he was a Hamlet-like figure. It takes psychiatry, psychoanalysis to kind of put together this picture, because all you really see is the madness. But in the madness, you see the grain of truth that it both expresses and is a response to, that someone saw something that it was too impossible to live with, so they had to protect themselves with madness. So what is Hamlet protecting himself from? What's the full reality that he's unable to handle? For Jameson and Simon, the answer lies in his sexuality and his feelings about the women in his life. What he feels throughout the play constantly is disgust. Disgust with the world, disgust with himself, and disgust with female sexuality, and disgust in particular with um, the women of the world. And he's consumed with rage against uh, women in general. His anger and his rage, he gets mad. At that point, he has to push everyone away and debase particularly Ophelia, and then I think the rage against the mother is so... I mean, where is that coming from? He wants to turn away from love, he wants to turn away from marriage, he wants to turn away from reproduction, and just to, just to put it all to a stop, just put it all to an end. You know, no more marriages is the end of the human race, essentially. He says to his mother, but to live in the rank sweat of an encemed bed. An encemed bed, a bed which is ensemened with the semen of Claudius, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love, honeying and, make, honeying and making love over the nasty sty. It's so visceral and it's so hurtful. Something is rotten in the state of Hamlet's sexuality. Something is going on there. It's not clear. I think that was important to us, especially because of the idea that something could get covered over, that Hamlet could be seen as a nice guy, that Hamlet could be seen as the kind of epitome of modern modernity and humanity. And when we read it, we thought, this play is so strange. <laughs> and he's not a nice guy. <laughs> Hamlet is not a nice guy. And how had, how had we forgotten this you know he's an obsessional neurotic uh, of the most nauseatingly prolix kind from the beginning to the end so we wanted to bring that that strangeness back um, and really put it front and center and also how ophelia got lost as well even though you you watch her in the whole play pivots around her this was very important to them to restore Ophelia to her place at the centre of the play. He is dead and gone, lady. 
he is dead and gone. In her famous madness scene, she finds a way of expressing all the grief and horror of her situation. Hamlet's abuse of her, the murder of her father by Hamlet, and how the court has hushed it up. At his head, a grass-green turf. At his heels, a stone. There's this amazing way of mapping the play in terms of Hamlet kind of moving around Ophelia like uh, the shadow around a sundial, as if she's almost the center of the action. Of course, it's him, you know, and it's the play with the <laughs> he has the most lines of any character in every in any Shakespeare play. But somehow she's the the kind of center of it and he moves around her. She expresses the truth in her mad language at the very end. And will he not come again? And will he not come again? She's the one who's true to her desire, which is that she loves him. She never stops loving him. She's completely rejected by him. She's abandoned by him. But she never stops loving him, even in her madness. And it, it's it's insofar as she's close to her desire and close to her ruin um, that she becomes the, the real hero of the play. I mean, I think even when Hamlet dies at the end, he doesn't quite realize that he's ruined himself. She feels closer somehow to her death, to the tragedy of her situation right up until the very end. For Jameson and Simon, Ophelia does get her equivalent of the to-be-or-not-to-be speech. Lord, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. She is the one who is the closest to being, and especially being as loss, being as tragic. No, no, he is dead. Go to thy deathbed. He never will come again. Hamlet's trying to approach this question of being, especially with all of his speculation about mortality. But she's already there. And we also say that she's already there by virtue of the fact of being a woman, in a way. It's not the question of what she can be, because she can't be anything. She can't even be his wife, because she's not of noble enough birth. Right? And that's also part of her tragedy, is that she's in love with someone who fundamentally can't marry her. And she's reminded of this by her father and by her brother. She can't even be sexual. She's also reminded of that, that she must keep chaste. Um, so in this, somehow, she is the one who possesses what Hamlet's unable to get close to. We must be patient. But I cannot choose but weep to think they should lay him in the cold ground. Yeah, there are two, it's as if there are two plays going on. There's one tragedy called Hamlet, another tragedy called Ophelia. So I think for, 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 for Jameson and I, Ophelia is the, is the hero of the play. And it was important for us to, to bring that out and also to, to bring out um, how violent Hamlet's relationship is to her. It's something that we forget in our somehow love for Hamlet's indecision and um, wordiness. Something's rotten in... In male sexuality, I think something is something is awry in male sexuality, and um, Hamlet <sighs> is that for all of us. It's not that you know the play is misogynistic or anti-misogynistic. It's a play about the 
the complexities of human sexuality and human and human love relations. The answer is there in the play for Hamlet, but it's not one that he takes up or even recognizes. The true psychoanalyst in the play is the ghost. The ghost who both tells him the truth and says you have to find a relationship to this truth but who also intervenes in the second most violent scene, not just the nunnery scene, but the scene of Hamlet with his mother in her chamber um, when he kills Polonius. In that scene, the ghost appears, and the ghost says, you know, step between her and her fighting soul, um, conceit in weakest body, strongest work, speak to her Hamlet. And for us, this was this is what a psychoanalyst does. The psychoanalyst says, step between her and her, which is also to step into that space of division understand how conceit divides you against yourself, against your interests, because you can't give up your conceit and do what you need to do. You can't face mortality and speak. You might have to act, but you also have to speak. And this is what Hamlet doesn't do. He never speaks. At the moment in which he could say something, he slips away into this you know, antic disposition and monologuing, which is incredible, but somehow never really expresses the truth and that, we said, was the true tragedy. Up until the very end of the play, he never really says um, what it is that, that he understands. And because you can't reconcile yourself with what you wanted, you then sabotage all capability at that point, which is fundamentally what neurosis is. So why do we read Hamlet? Jameson quotes the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. He said that psychoanalysis had to be invented to deal with the strangeness of the human condition, not in order to fix it, but to expose that strangeness to itself. She thinks similar things happen when we read Hamlet. It won't fix the human condition, but it will help expose its strangeness to us. Oh, I absolutely think that that's why we read Hamlet. And I think, you know, in this way in which you... <laughs> are seeing that it becomes this rabbit hole. There's something about a play that gets close to, let's say, this, this strangeness, which is also the unconscious. There's something viral that happens, right? As if there's this, um, you know, contact with something that, that can spread, that becomes contagious. Um, and we don't know, we don't know, we don't know what the play has infected us with, unfortunately, to use a metaphor that's um, too real at the moment. Um, but I think it is this question of the what is what is this mystery at the heart of existence? What is life and what is what is life and death? I mean, what, what I'm thinking about what I'm questioning myself about when I'm reading Hamlet is um, is that question of um, thought and action and the incapacity to love. What does that really mean to love and is one actually worthy of it? So um, what is heartbreaking in um, Hamlet is in, it's not that he's a cold, a cold character. He, um, he wants something from his mother that he can't really ask for other than through raging at her. And he wants um, he wants love from Ophelia, who I think loved him. He wants that, but he can't he can't bring himself to bear that, and that's what's heartbreaking about. And that's why he ends up being a buffoon and talking too much, 
So Hamlet is a drama about the incapacity to love. And um, that's why it, it breaks our hearts, I think. Because I think we all have that question. I mean, it's, um, are we really capable of love? Me and Jameson, and we were in our way <laughs> trying to work out a relationship, a marriage uh, around this, around this, uh, around this, this two-headed monstrosity that is Hamlet and Ophelia. I mean, the irony of it is, is that you know, in order to write a book as a married couple, that the the you know the book is no, there shall be no more marriages. I think we didn't even understand what we were engaging in at the time that we were writing it. The relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia, and the somehow trying to understand this difficulty, this both very intense love and absolute failure to love one another. Um, and so for us, it was to look at this, um, what this says about the relationships between men and women. I think we, I think it was a, an attempt at sublimation of pouring ourselves into the question of what happens between men and women. Love is that kind of um, wanted, but a grace that you can't will, you can't force. And it, it comes when it comes and you have to accept it when it arrives. And Hamlet can't do that. He, um, when, when Ophelia declares her love, he can't accept it. He turns her into a, a kind of automaton. He debases her at that point. And I think so that's what's, um, that's what's heartbreaking about Hamlet for me. So yes, I do identify very, very powerfully with the play in that sense. I find uh, Hamlet yeah, intensely heartbreaking, you know, and the, the windbaggery, of course, is the windbaggery of people like me who are professional windbags, right? So it's, of course, that's what I'm seeing there. <laughs> you know, I think it was, I think it was too hard on us, to be honest. I think in a way there was something about the question of love and the difficulty of it. And we tried to pour ourselves into the reading of this play to understand something about that difficulty. But I do think it pushed Simon and I. I think it um, broke us a little bit. And I don't resent having done that. And I appreciate the fact that we were able to put into words and to create this incredible book together. But that's what I you know, sort of alluded to when um, we realized that we were writing a book whose you could say if it was about the relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia and the decree is there shall be no more marriage, it became the... I think the end of our marriage. <laughs> I think you have to be very careful. I think you have to be very, very careful. I think there's something very powerful there. As I said, I don't, I think neither of us would regret trying to get that close to um, that hole. And, you know, I hope that we would both say that we're, we're the better for it, for having had the courage to do that together. This podcast was produced during the coronavirus lockdown and the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors in a time of crisis, of pandemic, of lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit and there are special fundraisers set up during lockdown, details of which can be found on the podcast website. 
Finally, extra special thanks go to Emma Pallant for her reading of Ophelia in this episode. Also to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley Day for their rendition of the speech and to Chris Dyer for his help and advice. Soft you now, the fair Ophelia. Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. 